Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and include some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, new bombshell allegations in the Delphi murder case of Abby and Libby, the two teens who were murdered in Delphi, Indiana in 2017, the defense team for Richard Allen, the man charged with their murders, has released court records indicating police investigated, but never revealed publicly, that they found evidence potentially suggesting that Abby and Libby may have been killed as part of a pagan cult ritual. Police have said all along that the bodies were staged. Now we are learning what that could mean. But first, how far would you go if you believed the police botched your daughter's death investigation? They said it was a suicide, but if that's true, how did she stab herself in the back of the head and the back of the neck? The parents of a Philadelphia school teacher are suing the police and the medical examiner for getting it wrong. An appellate court has stopped them, but they say they will take it to the Supreme Court if they have to. We are recording this on Wednesday, September 20th of 2023. Our guest today is Philip Hamilton, Hamilton, a criminal defense attorney, legal analyst, and the managing partner at Hamilton Clark LLP in New York. And when we get to the Delphi case in the second half of this podcast journalist Susan Hendricks will be joining us because no one else has the insight that she does into this case. Philip, welcome back. It's always so good to see you. And it's always so great to see you. That's why I always come back. Happy to be here today. Excellent. We love it. We love it. We love it. We always call you. Will always refers to you as the guys from New York. The guys from New York, the attorneys from the New York law firm that we just love. We just love. Okay, um, let's get to our case, our first case, which is out of Philadelphia. I know you have a lot to say. You you told me before we started recording that you read the appellate decision, which was very revealing of information and facts, which I can't wait to hear your analysis of that. So everyone, we're talking about this case where there was a death of a young woman a first grade school teacher in Philadelphia. And this, her death has been debated now for 12 years. She was found stabbed to death in her apartment, but was it murder or was it suicide? Um, I wanna thank a member of our YouTube community for suggesting this case, Janine Grosnick. Thank you so much. Um, we were not aware of this case. Honestly, we weren't and, and it needs to be discussed. So the victim here, Philip, is 27 year old Ellen Greenberg, who was found dead in her home January of 2011 with 20 stab wounds, half of them in the back of her head and neck. Police initially said it was a suicide. I gotta tell you, 
This is so perplexing. When we discuss how people kill themselves, right. there are just things that don't add up. And in this case, they don't add up. There's so much about this case that doesn't add up. I am glad that the case was ultimately brought to your attention because frankly, um, as many years as I've been practicing, had never heard of these facts. And with as strange and as much as they don't add up uh, as they present themselves, I I'm just surprised that we haven't discussed this further. But in terms of the way that people typically, uh, when we think about committing suicide, and first we always need to even start to think whether or not there is an emotional impetus there to commit suicide, right? What's the motivating rationale? I'm pretty sure you and I will probably talk about that today and the lack thereof that it seems on uh, behalf of this particular victim. But nevertheless, the thought that one would kill themselves by stabbing themselves multiple times, not cutting their wrist, but literally stabbing themselves quite deeply multiple times, including in the back of the neck and just weird places that wouldn't seem to make sense if you're trying to do what otherwise would be the last act of your life. It, it, it doesn't add up. The appellate court, in many respects, imply that it doesn't add up. There are a lot of expert witnesses who, with respect to coroners, have determined this doesn't add up. And we need to talk a lot about this today in regards to these facts not really playing out to be a suicide, but more likely than not, at least as concerns the experts and just anecdotally as you look at the facts, it appears to be a homicide. It really does. And I am stunned when we read and talk about how the coroner's office, the ME and the police department argued about it. And there was a flip flop. And that in itself is very telling because there should be no flip flopping. The evidence is the evidence. And again, logically, are you going to stab yourself 20 times and ultimately die with a knife in your chest? How? I mean, it's it just doesn't make sense. And I always believe that crime also has logical components to it. This is not how people act. Right, right. And when you look a little bit more into just what was going on, there were other means with which if one wanted to kill themselves, okay? It's my understanding that there was Xanax in the house, there was clonazepam in the house, right? Prescription drugs yeah. used for you know, various means with which they had been prescribed. But nevertheless, to the extent that you ultimately want to, again, take that final act to end your life, there were ways that were less violent, that were less difficult, and that could have more easily helped the transition in the extent to the extent that you wanted to commit suicide, as opposed to stabbing yourself multiple times, which many experts, including uh, one of the experts who reviewed the case, was very clear about. When people get to the point where they want to commit suicide, if they're ultimately going to use a knife, they tend to typically think through like cutting you know, a wrist, cutting veins somewhere. And in the event that they do stab themselves, they certainly don't stab themselves through the clothes, as was the case here, right? Multiple stab wounds through the clothes, because oftentimes people want to see, okay, what is this gonna feel like? How much is this going to hurt? Just for one stab, but let alone multiple, we're talking 20 stabs here that just wouldn't make sense that you would stab yourself 20 times to death, including stabs, again, where you would have to take the knife and come up towards the back of your neck, which when we see in the medical examiner's report, are some of the areas, plural, not just singular, but plural, where the stabbing occurred. That just doesn't make sense for a suicide. I'm a criminal defense attorney for many years, to the extent that I was representing someone that was charged in this type of ilk, and I had to try to make the argument that the victim committed suicide, I'm, I'm gonna have a tough 
case with that. And I think we're going to have to go a different direction because it's not even credible or, as you said, logical. Yep, absolutely. Police initially said that it was a suicide. And the next day, the medical examiner, after finally examining Ellen's body, changed the cause of death to homicide. Then the medical examiner's office got pushback from the Philadelphia Police Department and the medical examiner changed the cause of death back to suicide, okay? In the meantime, during this 24 to 48 hour period where the authorities are arguing with each other, the crime scene is cleaned up, meaning any potential evidence is yeah. now gone, right. gone. So this right. was botched from the very beginning. And one of the rules you know, of police work and investigations is you start, when you have a death, you start from homicide and you build backwards until you determine, no, there's no way this was a homicide. You must assume that a death as violent as this, as vicious as this with blood everywhere. I mean, this was a horrific crime scene. How do you just like automatically go to, yeah, this is suicide? No, especially when there is evidence that would otherwise point toward homicide, even to the extent that it is a suicide, it's incumbent upon any competent investigative agency, police department, to look into the facts that may support that there's a finding of homicide. Because if you don't, then we run the risk of literally allowing a murderer to go free. And to think that you can come to a finding of suicide on day one, again, suicide has very much a psychological and an emotional component to it that has to be investigated in regards to where was Ms. Greenberg psychologically? How was she feeling? What was she going through? We don't have any suicide note, but we at the same time understand that she had a great relationship with her family. Her mother had spoken with her earlier in that day, okay? There were a lot of signs that pointed towards she was actually doing all right and not in a point where she needed to think about suicide or anyone in her family corroborating that she was at a point where that would make sense. So taking that into account, it would just be for me very difficult to understand and it is very difficult for me to understand how the police agency not knowing this woman at all, not having investigated her background at all, could come to a finding on day one that it's a suicide. We haven't tested any of the blood at the scene. In fact, as you mentioned, Anna, it's cleaned up literally the next day. Botched, I think, is the lesser version of the concept of what I could think in regards to detailing this investigation, but I don't wanna to get too explicit on the show, but I'm sure you can think between the lines of what I'm thinking in regards to how I would label this investigation. The word starts with a B, but it doesn't, it, it's not botched, right? It, it's just, it, it's, it, it wasn't correct, and it's unfortunate for this woman and her family. It really is, especially since the family has gone to great lengths to hire other experts to right. look at the evidence that was preserved and examine her body. And despite presenting this, the Philadelphia law enforcement community will not budge on this. And the fact that they will not budge, even when they had a flip-flop themselves, really is suspicious to me very, I mean, why do you need to double down on this one? Reopen the investigation, let's get to it. You need to double down on this one, why, why? I don't know why, and it's like you would typically wanna look into angles, well, 
is there a potential suspect that maybe has political connections that has connections with the police department clearly none of that is coming out and i'm not implying that but when we would typically be dealing with these kinds of you really botched the situation that bad it would almost seem to be purposeful on the part of the police department to almost want to be covering something up again not implying that but the way that this investigation ultimately ran i i really don't know what to think especially also anna when you look into the facts, she was living with her boyfriend at the time. I believe his name was Sam Goldberg. Her fiance. And, yeah, they were getting married. I'm sorry, her fiance. So she's living with Sam Goldberg. And, and, and I think part of, especially what the appellate court hit on, in their opinion, when we start to look at, again, what are things that don't necessarily add up to this being a suicide? He says that when he came, he went to go work out around 4.45 p.m., right? Mm -hmm. He comes back home about 45 minutes later. The door now is locked from the inside. The latch is on. He can't get on. He makes a series of calls to her, a series of text messages like, hey, I'm at the door. Let me in. What's going on? This isn't funny. Please come on. Let me in. And after about an hour, apparently, he comes back upstairs and says that he comes with the security guard of the building to basically break the door in. But later, as it comes to find out, and the security guard who he referenced ultimately signed a declaration saying, I never went up there to help him open that door. I, I wasn't there, right? And so the fact that you have the fiance saying that, well, I came upstairs with the security guard, but then the security guard is later saying I was never there and still images from the video, the surveillance video shows that he was by himself when he went to open the door, wasn't with the security guard. Things just aren't adding up. There is more that needs to be investigated. It's not to say that the fiance had anything to do with committing murder, yes, right? Of course. But there are strange, just inconsistencies that exist within this investigation. Well, the one that probably should have been had more fully that again, I think would be tough to say on day one, this is a suicide. I think the case needed to be looked into much more closely, much more deeply. The police had said in their report, and they stick to this, that. Uh, there are several reasons why they insist it was a suicide. And one of the reasons is because the door was locked from the inside and that it did not appear that an intruder or anyone had broken in other than when the fiance broke the door down because he couldn't get in and was worried. So their feeling was like, well, if there was nobody in the place, how could that door have been locked? You know, figure that one out later, okay? Is that really the mystery we need to solve right away is how is the door locked from the inside? Add it to the investigation, but there's a lot more to discuss about this. So it, it, it really is troubling and we will play the 911 tape for you because I always think it's the most interesting record in real time of a crime as, you know, or a crime scene, because mm -hmm. it is a crime scene, um, mm -hmm. as it is kind of um, unfolding in real time. Now, Ellen's parents, Joshua and Sandra, have been trying to change that cause of death through right. civil litigation, because trying to talk to the prosecutor's office and the police and the medical examiner's office is absurd. They will not listen, so they've taken another avenue and gone the civil route. And so um, there had been uh, the first judge, I guess, said, yes, you know, you can go ahead with your lawsuit. But then the city said, oh, no, we're appealing this decision, went to the appellate court, a three judge panel ruled that the parents, this is the new information, mm -hmm. ruled that the parents didn't have standing and therefore couldn't sue the city. What does that mean? All right. Really quickly, I just want to note, and I had to go back and take a look at this myself. It did go before a three judge panel, but the appellate court only held that there wasn't standing 
with respect to two of the justices. One did dissent. The family's ultimately going to appeal, I believe, to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and keep this going. So what I'm trying to say there is even the judges aren't in agreement as to whether they're standing or whether there's not. Um. But the two who did ultimately determine that there wasn't standing, their arguments are essentially as much. The family at this point, as you noted, I mean, this case has been around a long time. We're just now talking about it. Because Ms. Greenberg died in 2011, they would have had to have brought a wrongful death action, generally speaking, by 2013, two years after the death, okay? Mm -hmm. And so what this court is saying is, even if we were to go back and allow this litigation against the medical examiner's office to have some kind of declaratory judgment or force the issue on changing the cause of death, there's still really no harm being shown because you're precluded now from bringing the wrongful death action. The statute of limitations have ran, right? So that's number one. It's like, we, we, for us to go back and change this, you have to show some kind of harm that you're currently experiencing. And if your argument is that we can't bring a wrongful death action while this medical report is still saying suicide, right? That may have been a plausible action in 2012, or early 2013, but in 2023, you're not going to be able to bring that cause of action anyway. You're not be able, going to be able to bring that lawsuit anyway. So you're not showing us any harm. So you don't have standing. Moreover, the family has argued that by virtue of there being a finding of suicide, clearly there's not going to be much motivation on the DA's office to move on a homicide investigation, right? Or to charging one with murder, because what's the defense attorney going to do the first moment that they have an opportunity being an opening statement or cross-examination of the coroner? At the end of the day, you ruled this a suicide. You talk about reasonable doubt. It doesn't get more gold than that, right? That a medical examiner's office found suicide, right? So you don't, what, what the court is saying basically is to say that the DA's office can't move on prosecuting a homicide, it's kind of speculative because even if ultimately we ordered the medical examiner to change it from suicide to homicide, it doesn't mean that the DA's office would move on it, right? Because like mm -hmm. even still in the past, there was a finding of suicide and it would just muck up their case. Lastly, what the uh, family is essentially saying is that by the finding being suicide, they now essentially as victims, right? The estate are not entitled to the victim's compensation fund in Pennsylvania that typically will help compensate victims of violent crimes, murders, because we have a finding of suicide. And moreover, in terms of us trying to get insurance benefits, right? Like in terms of the life insurance uh, and what have you, we're gonna run into issues because there's a finding of, again, suicide, which we know whenever people commit suicide, a lot of times life insurance policies won't pay out, right? So they've put all these arguments forward, but what the appellate court is essentially saying is, you haven't pled that you have not been able to secure insurance proceeds, right? Which would be a harm. You haven't pled that you've had any issues with getting that money. Again, you are precluded at this point from bringing a wrongful death action because we're more than 10 years past the statute of limitations. And the DA's office wouldn't necessarily investigate this case as a homicide anyway. So if you can't show us current harm, right? That this finding is preventing you from being able to do something that you would otherwise definitely not speculatively but definitely have the right to do then you're not you really don't have the right to be in court because in order to be in court you have to show current harm and if you can't show that then you don't have standing to litigate the case i know that was long-winded but anna that that's essentially the heart of what's going on and why the appellate court made a decision but to be clear 
The appellate court also was clear that it found very troubling the medical examiner office's final finding of suicide, that a lot of the facts do militate against that, but essentially within the opinion was saying, hey, unfortunately, the law has tied our hands. And if you don't have standing, as much as we would love to help you, we can't. So essentially either kicking the bucket to the legislature to change the law, or they have the right to appeal to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and maybe that court will come out with a different interpretation of the law. Oh my gosh, it's like everything hinges on something that is very, very specific to the law that really is about their position in all of this without really addressing the core issue, which is, was this thing botched from the beginning? Is this really a suicide? Help us, you know, to knock some sense into the Philadelphia law enforcement community. And so the fact that they have, that Philadelphia has a win, if you will, with this appellate decision, they are further emboldened into digging their heels into this position. And yet, at the end of the day, we are no closer to justice than we were, you know, more than a decade ago. We're, right. we're, we're just not closer to it. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. I, I did find it interesting that the appellate court did very clearly write that the investigation into Ellen's death was, quote, deeply flawed. Is that anything that they can use to their benefit to push this in the right direction? I, so interestingly, the justice who wrote the opinion, I did some background research on her, uh, she's a former assistant district attorney herself in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. right? And she's also done a lot of work uh, with respect to police accountability, okay? And just some other areas that I won't bore you with. But just to say, I think she can look at a case just from her own historical experience, but then also being a judge and just say, something's not right here. And it is, at times, if the court already has a decision on the law, it's kind of extraordinary for the court to take this extra step and say, we are bound by the law, but on the fact, something's not right here. And, and that's exactly what the court did. And by saying something's not right here, clearly it's got me and you talking. The press is now more involved in the case. Maybe this is something that you know the Pennsylvania legislature ends up taking a look at and maybe changing the law. It, it, you you don't know, but like if 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 courts aren't kind of kind of taking that extraordinary step, then of course there won't be any change. So I think that was just a nugget for the family to we can't do anything because we're bound by law, but maybe the court above us can, maybe the legislature can. Oh, I hope, you know, I really hope that they don't stop keeping the pressure up. And apparently there is a second lawsuit that they have going. I don't know what the status of that is, but they are certainly, I mean, these parents are not giving up. Now, we talked a little bit about Ellen's background and you mentioned that there were, you know, um, several prescription medicines that she had been prescribed. Um, right. You know, she was engaged to be married. So there's a lot of great stuff going on in her life. 
at this time. She was shared that apartment with her fiance, Sam Goldberg. He's the one who called her and called 911. Again, we will get to that in a minute. Now, in an interview with police, Ellen's mother, Sandra Greenberg, did tell authorities that when she spoke to Ellen that morning at seven, as you said, Mm -hmm. um, she didn't notice anything unusual that day. She also found it interesting that um, Ellen stopped to get gas, filled up her tank before she went home. Um, There was no suicide note. The parents did say to the police that um, Ellen was struggling with anxiety and was currently being treated for anxiety. In fact, according to the Daily Mail, Ellen had told her parents that she wanted to quit her job and maybe move back home. There was just a, there were those kinds of things going on, which are not unusual. These are real life factors that people deal with all of the time. She did express she was feeling overwhelmed, insecure, anxious, okay. And she was being treated to see if they could, you know, stabilize all of this. And what's interesting is that four days before she was found dead, she and her fiance had sent out, they saved the date cards for the wedding, which was gonna be in August. And um, in fact, the Daily Mail had this this beautiful picture of um, Ellen in her wedding dress, you know, she had been trying on wedding dresses. I don't know if that was the dress that she had chosen. So, you mm-hmm. know, there was a lot of joy going on as well as some some challenges that the family has uh, expressed, but nothing to the extent that would lead someone to, you know, this violence, this unbelievable violence that was found. Right. Okay, so now let's get to um, that 911 call because I think we really need to hear what's going on because it's interesting that when he finally does call 911 he's being told to try and give her CPR and he's like but there's like a giant knife in her chest you, you know so let's just listen to the call I went downstairs to go work out I came back up the door was latched my fiance's inside she wasn't she wasn't answering so after about a half hour I decided to break it down I see her now just on the floor with blood like she's not she's not responding oh my god she stabbed herself where she fell in a knife so the 911 call was made at 633 paramedics arrived at 640 and the paramedics said that Ellen was already dead and there was nothing that they could do for her so let's get to the ME's findings. According to the Philadelphia Medical Examiner, Ellen was found with those 10 wounds to the neck, eight to the chest, one to the abdomen, and one to the scalp. Mm. Does that sound like someone doing it to themselves? No, and when you look within the reports, um, one of the multiple experts that the family ultimately retained to, you know, review the medical examiner's findings, you know, talk specifically about one of the particular stab wounds that essentially hit an area around the area of the spine that for lack of a better way to put it, would have essentially almost killed her right then and there. But that there were other stab wounds, right, that as the, you know, expert noted, you you can't stab yourself when you're already dead, right? And to the extent that you have all of these additional stab wounds, again, in all these very, you know, just unconventional places, if you're going to, again, try to kill yourself, it just doesn't add up. It, it, It just doesn't add up. Even with respect to the anxiety, 
and, you know, other things that she may have been facing, which is, you know, for the purposes of a lot of us living life on this planet, it can be anxiety inducing, it can be stressful. That's why a lot of these medications are prescribed. There just wasn't more there coming from the family, even coming from notes from the psychiatrist who ultimately ended up providing just their own perspective in regards to what they thought about Miss Greenberg and if she presented as suicidal or not. And frankly, she was, you know, never- And they said no, the psychiatrist said no. Exactly. So, you know, to that end, I'm sorry, just on day one, circling back to where we started, I don't know how with all of that, you come to a finding of suicide on day one, not knowing a thing about this woman and looking at a scene where someone has been stabbed multiple times. I think they did say something along the lines of maybe they didn't find anybody's DNA on the knife. It doesn't mean correct. That's what they said. Police gloves or some other means with which to keep their DNA from ending up on the knife. But I don't know. These are things that you need to investigate and weren't ultimately investigated. And, you know, here we are, unfortunately, sadly talking about it. And here the family is, you know, continuing to try to fight for justice. And these were not superficial wounds. That's the other thing. These were not because sometimes people will harm themselves uh, and then say that they were attacked as part of all sorts of crazy cover-ups that we've seen in many, many cases. Right. And police and and the uh, medical examiners and or uh, doctors, if the person is still alive, will clearly say, wait a minute, these were superficial wounds. They, it may look like they went through a fight, but they were, these were not. These were really deep. And remember, that, that last puncture to the chest was deep. It was a 10-inch knife. So, uh, again strength that you have to have within yourself to be able to do that, knowing that you're about to hurt yourself. I mean, it's just otherworldly, like the level I would imagine of depression or despair you'd have to be in. We haven't heard any of that, but whether we heard it or not, even if you are that depressed, this manner of death just doesn't make sense as concerns suicide, as concerns a homicide makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. And what's- the way in which the medical examiner's office is leaving this. What to me is very murky and messy, and there is plenty of mess to go around here, is, you know, that videotape. There was a videotape that the, um, we'll say the landlord or agents of the landlord had made of the scene, gave the videotape to the police. The police claim to not know where this videotape is. It's just one more thing. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know where this tape is? How? It it just, it all doesn't add up. And then that whole cleaning of the apartment um, after they determined it was suicide and they said day to one. the landlord. On day one, suicide on day one. Right, Ridiculous. day one, clean it up. And uh, I, the discussion has been and the criticism has been, why didn't the police talk to the cleanup crew? Why didn't the police... Even after, even after knowing that all this evidence had now been destroyed in the cleaning up of this crime scene, they still didn't take all those steps that they should have. It it really has, it has been horrible, a disservice, and absolutely there there can never be justice. I don't know how you're ever going to get justice for Ellen under these circumstances. It, and if so, it would be relative justice, but never the justice I think that the family actually deserved. No. It really isn't. The Philadelphia Inquirer has done a lot of reporting on this. It has not received much national attention, however, but with this appellate ruling, it, it appears that there may be. Um, just 
an update on the medical examiner's report that came in a few months later in April of 2011. Uh, that's when they listed Ellen's cause of death as multiple stab wounds with the manner of death listed again as suicide. And the part of the determination went that there was, again, no DNA on the knife or her clothes that shouldn't have been there. Uh, again, to support their theory here. So Ellen's family has never, ever believed this was suicide. They find it very odd. It just wasn't adding up. So they have hired all of these experts and they've all come up with different conclusions. We have seen where families in other cases where they have hired experts and have been able to push investigators to reopen cases, look at things, change things. But so far, they haven't been able to. I think the most I've seen, and you know, call me if I'm wrong on this, just because I know we've both been kind of looking at this case recently, but I do believe, because the appellate court cited to it, but that the Emmy's office has conceded that there is evidence there that could point toward a homicide, but just isn't changing its finding, right? So like essentially what they're saying is, okay, it's not irrational or illogical on the facts to think that, you know, a homicide could have occurred. We just don't think that and our findings are as such. That's what I took from the appellate opinion. And um, that's just an unfortunate place to be for the family. I can't even imagine. Yeah, I, you know, and even the family has said, look, even if you change it to cause of death has been, you know, not determined, that yeah. even that would be an improvement, that it would give some some leeway. They were willing to go to that and say, okay, let's let's at least move it into the gray area but Philadelphia absolutely refuses. Um, they have presented what they can to the attorney general, to the district attorney. And again, it just feels like at each turn, um, they've been hit with no's. And, the, and this final blow on September 13th was the appellate court decision. And her parents said, you know, they weren't necessarily surprised because they've been told no, 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 but they're yeah. not going to give up. And I think that that's important that they're not gonna give up. They say, her parents say, not only will they appeal this, but they say they're still pressuring the Chester County District Attorney's Office. Now here's what's bizarre. The, the official word from the DA's office is, we have an ongoing investigation, that it's not a closed case. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean anything? It's political bureaucratic talk. I mean, you and I have heard that. I mean, all the years you've done reporting when you're going hard, investigating, trying to get the right answers and questions, it's political bureaucratic talk. And like, frankly, just where things stand, it just feels stubbornly political and bureaucratic in regards to the gate that has been closed on this family. When more commonsensically, we all as regular non-bureaucratic players who want to see justice done here can just see where that stubbornness is wronging the family and that most likely, again, none of us were there. So I I, I, I can't say that someone wouldn't stab themselves 20 times. Okay, so let me clear of that. But it's just highly unlikely. It doesn't make sense. And I think at minimum, it just simply warranted more investigation. And I think that's what the family yes. at the minimum is looking for, at right. the minimum. Right, I think you may very well, the experts may very well have reached a similar conclusion or have said, you know what, it's really not clear what the manner of death was, but we're not ruling it a homicide. 
but right. there is no evidence and there are no facts left from the crime scene because it was all cleaned up. Therefore, you don't get a redo on that one. You will uh, never know the answers to these questions. And unless somebody has one of those deathbed confessions, right? But short of that, I think you're absolutely correct. You'll just never know. You're just never going to know. Well, they say that um, when the holidays come along, her parents say that they try and focus on working toward the goal of trying to get justice for her. That's how they focus. But of course, they realize there's always an empty seat at their table. Their hearts have a hole. And there is no amount of work. There is no amount of petitioning. There is no amount of anything that's going to fill that hole for them. But I do appreciate the fact that they will not give up and um, will be following this case. I don't, maybe we could even have them on. Maybe her parents would like to come on and discuss this case. I would love that. And I would love to see that too. God bless them and, um, you know, just simply hoping for the, the best moving forward. Like I said, their fight continues. The appellate court was not unanimous, right? Even the judges are disagreeing. So it's not to say that they are foreclosed from finally getting some of the relief that they're seeking. But at this point, the fight just must continue. All right, everyone, this is a bombshell. Our next case is out of Delphi, Indiana, and we've got journalist Susan Hendricks joining us. She's written a book on this case. Um, many of you may be familiar with Susan's work on, on this particular mystery because she's been working on it for years. So Susan, welcome, thank you. We so appreciate your knowledge and insight into this case. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. You know, this case, just when you think maybe you've heard it all and there's so many twists and turns throughout the investigation no one under arrest for close to six years so you think finally okay maybe we will get to exhale here but now all of a sudden as you said a bombshell what does this mean and will this delay the trial and what is the next step i'm wondering I, I don't know. And I know Philip Scott, you know, a lot of opinions here and we're going to need his expertise to figure out what the legal maneuvering here is. But let, let's, you know, the headline is crazy. Let me get to the headline, then give you a quick summary of the case, because not everyone has been following this case. And I want everyone to catch up when we get to the details of what's been released, because it really is mind blowing and mind boggling. So the defense is claiming this is all in court records, that police investigated and withheld information from the court, the judge, and from the defense about potential evidence, potential evidence that Abby and Libby's murders may have been part of a pagan sacrifice ritual. Insanity. I mean, I, Philip, when I hear something like pagan cult ritual death on a case that is has, a mis has so much mystery to it, I generally reject it except for the fact, some of the stuff that they've released, which really concerns me. So, uh, oh, and here's the thing, right, Philip? There's a gag order. So the only way the defense can put anything out there is Absolutely. through a court record. I was gonna say right? that. Absolutely. And that court record is, and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Susan, I think that motion is 136 pages, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, you're gonna keep us from coming out here and in any way putting our version of events, our theory of the case out, then fine, legally we'll just plead it in a motion, right? And I think ultimately, whether or not it delays the the, the trial to the extent that you, you, you mentioned, Susan, I think for the court to just kind of wrap itself around all of these facts the way that we're trying to right now, I wouldn't be surprised if at minimum, the court ultimately ended up feeling even just the political necessity 
to grant the Franks hearing, which, yes, in many respects could ultimately delay the trial because then the court's going to have to issue an opinion in a manner that clearly the defense is not going to tread this Franks hearing lightly. They're going to come, for lack of a better way to put it, correct. They're going to bring in witnesses. They're ultimately going to try to meet their burden to show that some of the information that was made as a part of that initial search warrant application was false. And that because of that, ultimately, they are entitled to relief, which may include up to suppressing some of the evidence. But, you know, we could talk about this as we continue this conversation. OK, yeah. And um, we're going to ask for an explanation of what a Frank's hearing is. But I, I want everyone, again, to be up to speed on where we are with the case, what has happened, what we know, and now what we're learning, whether it is truth or not. So the quick summary here is that 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Libby German never returned home after a walk. They went out on February 13th of 2017 to a local uh, bridge, and then they were found murdered the next day. And the investigation stalled. It stalled for years, and very little information ever came out. Um, a few years later, there was a key piece of evidence. It was a videotape that was taken by Libby surreptitiously of a man walking on a bridge. This is a man who had a blue jacket on, blue jeans, a cap, and there was some audio that went with that video that was found on her phone and you could hear guys down the hill. So for years, that was about all we had. We didn't know the manner of death. We knew that they were murdered. One thing was consistent, right, Susan? They always said the bodies were staged. We didn't know what that meant. But now in this uh, release of these court records, there's a description of what that posing and staging of the bodies is, which is very disturbing if this is true one of the girls was naked the other one had the other one's clothes on there were weird um things done with branches and that were made to look like maybe antlers that were put in their hair again this is all coming out of this court filing so five years as susan said five years go by and in october of 2022 police arrest a local man who works at the cvs this would be Richard Allen. He has admitted to being on the bridge that day. He was even interviewed as a witness by um, a parks official, but he denies having killed the girls. Okay, so there's the gag order, and now let's get to what's happening here. So this shocking new revelation is again from Richard Allen's defense team. They are alleging that Abby and Libby were sacrificed by practitioners of Odinism, which is a Nordic pagan religion i'm reading this because i don't want to mess this part up because you know this is so inflammatory that i i really want to be absolutely specific to the court record here so this predates christianity odinism um idealizes pagan viking nordic traditions has reportedly been adopted by white nationalist groups and is practiced in prisons i mean they, I, I, this is like crazy talk I, I, it's yeah. so disturbing. These documents, uh, which were released by news organizations as well, has now been resealed because there were lists of people. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of stuff in here. Susan, what are you making of all of this? Yeah, I'm holding some of the documents as I printed them out and started going through this. And Philip could speak to this. Um, 
in terms of the gag order, because Judge Fran Gull issued a gag order December 2nd, 2022, then extended that because the point of it was to not try this case in the court of public opinion. Well, is this their way around it? I'm wondering, because they have to prove this in court. They have to prove this. It will be interesting to see how the judge rules here. This is very disturbing and it could be a complete circus that has nothing to do with anything. But the fact that it appears that the police, the FBI, and the Indiana State Troopers actually investigated possible ties to this Odinism. Philip, does that mean that there's something there, meaning just even the fact that they appeared to have investigated it? and then never shared that or shared it with the court or the defense. Right. Whether there's something there or not, what I will tell you is if I were a member of the defense team, I'm going to do everything I can to make something of it. And I think that this 136 page motion is step one. When and if this matter ultimately is tried, certainly throughout the course of opening statements, throughout the course of every cross-examination of any law enforcement authority that had anything to do with the investigation, we're not gonna necessarily be talking about the gun that was found in my client's mm -hmm. home that may or may not have matched one of the shell casings found next to the bodies. We're going to be discussing these avenues of what else was going on here that either you're trying to cover up that you don't want this jury to know, but that you certainly investigated because you had credible either leads or credible evidence to show that this was a path with respect to the Odinism and with respect to this you know, older pagan religion that may or may not have played a part in the deaths of these two girls that can take away both the spotlight from my client and also when we talk about reasonable doubt, start to build much more of that, right? So I think whether there's something there or not, they certainly are going to make a lot of it. And to the extent that, again, this doesn't the judge doesn't want this tried in the court of public opinion. I, I do think that this was a strategic end around that gag order because look at all of us right now talking about this in depth. This has gone a bit more national, right? Just because it is extraordinary. It is just not something that's very normal. Like you said, you have to think, is this even real, right? So yeah. when you start putting facts out there like that, you, you can imagine that a larger part of the jury pool may or may not at some point take a look at it or, or, or hear about it. And then it can be explored further throughout the course of Wadir, further throughout the course of trial and what have you. So I, I think it was just a strategic end around and, and where ultimately ends up, time will tell. It It is interesting to me that the authorities did investigate this potential avenue. So that doesn't necessarily mean that they, it appears that they found that there was no connection, but there were things that according to these court documents at the crime scene were disturbing and pointed them in the direction, meaning again, potential symbols, arrangement of branches. I think another part of this that is very interesting, and obviously this is all about how does this affect Richard Allen, um, they are claiming, the defense is claiming in these court records that some of the guards at the prison where Richard Allen is being held are members of of this, they're, they're Odinites. And 
Um, they want to move him from that prison because they say those guards are torturing him mentally. And that's why, you know, I, on the last time you were on, Susan, we talked about Richard Allen's behavior. He looks horrible. He looks unkempt. He was eating paper. Um, you know, some people mm-hmm. think that he's buckling under the stress. Some people think he's making it up. I mean, he certainly doesn't look good. He looks like a very different man than the man who went in there. But isn't that interesting, Susan, that they're now claiming that the guards could be a part of all this. Going back to what you said um, about the investigation, you bring up an excellent point because yes, maybe they did look into this and they looked into so many people, someone that was brought up, someone that maybe was on the radar or committed a crime nearby. I remember during the long investigation asking Tobe Lesenby for this particular person or that one, and he would say, Susan, we're looking into it. Well, then that became the headline. they're looking into this man for the murder of Abby Libby and the families were concerned thinking if that's the headline people are going to think it's solved so Tobe completely shut down in terms of what he would say to the media not even generalities came from it what was key to me throughout this long investigation was yes they could be looking into uh, plenty of theories and and people but no one was ever charged or arrested none of that seemed to kind of um, come to anything except Richard Allen. What I think, and Philip, you talked about it, the extensive um, paperwork and, and, and what's involved, the motion to suppress is really what they want, right? They don't want what was found in Richard Allen's house to be told, to be brought into court, to be told to the jury. So is all of the other facts or facts according to the defense um, noise surrounding that? And they have the right, if they believe that Liggett didn't get that, on the up and up and there's some discrepancy there and the judge will rule on that but it is curious to me that yes maybe they looked into that but i'm sure close to six years they looked into so many theories i think a larger part of the noise and correct me if i'm wrong susan but i think that the prosecution may be in possession of phone calls from the jail where richard allen is alleged to have essentially been confessing to these murders to his wife and or others and when we talk about some of the noise that is centering around one of the bigger issues, right, which is trying to suppress the gun, that noise has to be put out there because when a court, let's just be frank, when a court is making a decision to suppress such a key piece of evidence, because if that gun doesn't come into trial, the prosecution has a problem, right? The case probably crumbles. And so if the court is being put in that political calculus to where if I suppress this biggest piece of evidence, I'm essentially the reason why this case is going away. You have to give the judge something, right? To let the court think that I'm not, in making the decision to suppress as a judge, I'm not necessarily letting off a 100% guilty murderer, right? You have to pepper, I'm just talking strategically, legally, you have to pepper that motion with some other reasons with which the court can believe, okay, it's my understanding as a judge, the, the 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 decider on the law, and ultimately will be making the decision on the law that there are these confessions that exist. But if there's some noise within the motions about, yeah, but there's these Odinistic guards in prison that are pressuring him to say these kinds of things and 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 in harming him and, and and hurting his mental health such that he's saying things that aren't true, judge. That's what you're saying in between the lines as a lawyer. And I think that's why a lot of that noise has to pepper this application, because short of that, it's really tough 
to win a Frank's hearing, wherein you're asking a court to find that law enforcement or whoever swore out before a court that everything that they were going to say in the affidavit for the court to find probable cause to issue the warrant was false. You got to give the court something. It's really an uphill battle to win a Frank's hearing. And so I think at this point, the defense is essentially throwing the kitchen sink in both making the motion to suppress, but also starting to give more of a factual underpinning of why the court should really consider the motion. And I guess the bonus is this kind of gets out. And like I said earlier, it may permeate the jury pool such that you start the process of reasonable doubt. What I don't understand is if if they did investigate the possibility of this pagan cult, okay, and, and maybe they did, how does that in any way affect getting a search warrant for Richard Allen? I don't see how that prevents or 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 having this information now, how that changes that. That's the link I am missing here. And why didn't Richard Allen mention any of their names? I would, if I was under arrest for a double murder, I'd start naming names and talking yeah. about what I think happened that day. Um, look, is there some truth in this? We don't know. And we'll find out in court. And I think, Anna, this plays into um, investigators really being tight-lipped. That's putting yeah. it mildly. Yeah. Never saying where they were in the investigation. Never even saying they ruled a particular person out. I mean, family members either. Never saying anyone was ruled out. So it leaves space for interpretation, theory, speculation. And those two lawyers, when they were assigned to this case, they said they didn't know much about it. They dug deep. Yeah. And they saw what people were saying, I would imagine, online and the different theories. And they're out there. That could sp you could go down a long rabbit hole here. So I do have a question um, for Philip. Mm -hmm. um, so, Philip, let's say that there is some truth that these avenues were investigated and were not turned over to the defense as part of discovery. And defense is claiming, look at all this stuff that we found. Well, they had to have found it somehow. So what... I, like, how did they find this information? I mean, they're even quoting an FBI profiler in these documents. They're quoting an FBI profiler telling the investigative team that, quote, the killer or killers were involved in Nordic beliefs. Okay, well, they had to have found that in the paperwork somewhere. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. They didn't get it through discovery, then how'd they get it? And is it an interpretation of the crime scene? Is it someone's interpretation about the way a stick was placed? Yeah. Does it necessarily mean that that's what it was? I don't know. This could be convoluted. I believe that Judge Fran Gull um, will make the right decision. I truly believe. And I wonder, Philip, when will we hear this, her ruling on this? Could it take a while? For her own record, right, when you start to think about appellate authority, because, you know, at times as a criminal defense attorney, not only are you thinking through just the trial court, you're thinking about setting your record for any given stage in the event that the trial court procedure doesn't go your way, right? So in order for her to protect her record and not have this case get kicked back to her on appeal, mm -hmm. she's going to take her time. So I can't sit up here and tell you that I think this would be instant. I just would agree with you, Susan, that I think it's going to be thorough. And I think that's going to be her priority more so than the timing. I am curious, Susan, um, because if, if these court records are accurate about the placement of the bodies, and how they were killed. The, the defense is claiming that the two girls had their throats slit. So we have never been told officially 
The right, exact- we had heard uh, sharp objects, I believe, and right. that was very vague um, right. and elusive. Right. And so uh, has, mm-hmm. ha- has there been any reaction to the family with this information being well, released, whether it's true or not, and how they're handling it? I don't ask them and they don't tell me because there is a gag order. And so if they were to tell me and then I were to say something, it'd be kind of, um, I just avoid the topic of the case altogether because I feel like there was a reason that this person was arrested after five, almost six years. There was a reason because there were other names that seemed to be kind of an easier quote unquote target, meaning they seem to fit the criteria, if you will, Mm -hmm. not an arrest until this person. And I'm wondering because part of the documents, um, it was amended in terms of, do they have more evidence during that search warrant? Did they gather? We know they gathered much more than than just the gun, but how significant is it? To me, it's significant enough to come up with 130 plus pages. And, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what's decided and if cameras will be allowed into the courtrooms and the hearings. The defense attorney, from what I recall, wants them cameras in the hearings as well. I I think we should have as much transparency as possible. I agree, especially in this. I mean, there's so many rumors and, and what have you out there that but I think it's necessary. While, you know, I hear you, Susan, when you say there's a reason that they, you know, they have focused and like laser beam on Richard Allen. Let's not forget that they the same investigative team has had to admit. And this is something that has not sat right with the family members is, hold on a second. Richard Allen was interviewed that back then immediately by a park official. He was was treated as a witness as opposed to a possible suspect. And then because of a quote, clerical issue, this is what we've been told officially. Misfiling, right. Right, It, it was, the information was misfiled. And that's why five years later, when they started all over again, they're like, Who's this Richard Allen? I mean, that, come on, Philip, that does not look good for the investigative team. No, it doesn't. It, whether it's in the motions or if it's at trial, it's certainly, again, all I can say is there are certain cases where as a defense attorney, you're working with nothing, right? And, and, and you're trying to do in everything you can to explore angles to try to either save your client or to at least mitigate the consequences of what they're looking at. This defense team, interestingly, has a lot to work with, a lot. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they come out on the other side victorious, but they definitely can go into the fight. And I think it's a case that the prosecution should in no way take lightly because of all of these factors and variables that we've discussed thus far. Yeah, I think the jury just has to believe, as we saw in different cases with, um, you know, evidence that was collected and how it was collected. You're right. There's a plethora. Uh, of issues to talk about. And that stood out to me too. If that person was in uh, the authority in the parking lot and Richard Allen approached him and said, I was there at the bridge that day and maybe there was a lot going on and there were so many people involved. The FBI came in, the tip line. But wouldn't he remember that when Libby, her recording on her phone, was on our air over and over again? Wouldn't he say, hey, wait a minute, I think I talked to that guy. And they said it was misfiled. Well. The FBI came out right away, right after that was said, and said it wasn't us. We didn't misfile anything. So that's a big question, Anna, to bring up. That's a great point. It's a lot. It's a lot. And Susan, I really appreciate you you joining us for this because this one was so overwhelming. Um, It's just so explosive 
what is being alleged and we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there are two little girls who were brutally murdered brutally murdered and um we must get justice for these girls yeah, but certainly the work is cut out for them the attorneys and the judge so i don't know all the facts i'm not saying it's one way or the other what i am saying is that i hope uh, that this isn't delayed too long. You know, the family, um, for lack of a better phrase, wants it over with. Who wants to be in court hearing about uh, brutality against their loved ones? So I hope that it is kind to the families, as kind as it can be, I guess, and that it's, um, you know, it's obviously not smooth sailing thus far. So we'll see with all of this complication. But again, to me, it's up to the judge and things will play out the way they're supposed to in court. It will be interesting to see though, if the motion to suppress is granted, and does that just mean the gun is Philip talked about, or does that mean everything that was found? The gun's out. I, I don't know what they're doing with it. It's a tough case, like even with the confession, even with the confessions, right? Yeah. Agreed, agreed. Well, we're going to watch this case closely as we have when there are huge developments. Um, Susan, you've written a book. We're not gonna do comments today, everyone. We've had two very heavy cases and we wanted the extra time to be able to, you know, kind of digest what's been released here and what could be true, what is, is not true. Lot. I have no idea. So mm -hmm. Susan, your book has come out and um, tell us a little bit about where we can get the book because this, this case is very personal to you. Yeah, it's called Down the Hill, My Descent into the Double Murder in Delphi. It's different than a typical crime book because it does focus on the families and their journey. I do talk about the investigation. I do talk about some key moments, that press conference, both sketches, I was there, the men on the bridge, but just how the family navigated through this. Because we usually hear about the person that's accused of doing this. So it's a perspective from the family and uh, Kelsey wrote the foreword about her journey and, and her interactions with the media and her losing her sister and deciding through support that her sister would want her to continue on. And um, sure enough, I called the Becky to see how they were doing, checking in the summer, and she was had a baby. She was pregnant, obviously, before that, but had a baby in August. And just yesterday, she sent me video of her little girl, Ellie, laughing. And just, I could, I could see just an adorable baby, and I think that will be healing for the family. I think it already has been. Yeah, that's beautiful. Just beautiful. Susan, where can people follow you or find you? Because I know you're constantly doing updates on this case. They can find me on Instagram. I think I'm on there way too much. I'm scrolling a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but they can find me there. And if they want to reach out with a comment or uh, get in touch with me, that's that's the best way. And Philip, where can people find you and follow you? Uh, like Susan, serial addict on IG. <laughs> find me at ESQ Hamilton at ESQ Hamilton. Susan's looking you up right now. <laughs> I, I'm writing it down. I'm like, I need to message you. <laughs> Absolutely. No, no, no. We like to make friends. This is a crime family, as we say. Right. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Anna G News on all social media platforms. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find this podcast, all podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Get our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.